There's a battle going on, a war between the enemy of our souls and the church, between the enemy of our soul and the nation of Israel. Satan's not the only one that's against us. The world is on his side, primarily. As Sandy was saying earlier that, you know, so many things are happening in our legislative body in our state of Maine. We're not the only ones that are experiencing those kinds of decisions that are made by people in power who think they know best. Many are they that say of my God (laughs) that there is no God. Many are they who say of my soul There is no help for him in God. Those words in Psalm 3 are very, very appropriate for us to realize it applies to us here today. But we have God on our side. He is our help. He is our shield. He is our fortress. He is our mighty tower. He is our strength. He is our all in all. We need him desperately in our lives. And it's because of the work of a few men who braved traveling in the very, very dangerous places that they traveled to over an extensive number of miles to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to a Gentile population that knew nothing of the true God, but they opened the door to a wonderful truth that was made available to them, and many received that truth. Today we've got an issue with those who don't know the truth. Many of them don't want to know. But I submit to you that that's no different than it was in Paul's day. Many just simply did not want to know the truth. But the Word clearly states, Jesus Himself said, My Word is truth. And the truth shall set you free. It has indeed set us free who believe, who have put our trust in Him. But that freedom wasn't recognized by all, even believers in the Apostle Paul's day. Primarily Jews who had come to the faith, but they really weren't ready to give up jewelry. Not jewelry, but jewelry the faith of their fathers, the law as was given to them by their most important prophet and patriarch, Moses. Well, that's what we're going to be looking at today as we continue in our study in the book of Acts. Paul and Barnabas have been on a missionary journey. We'll end chapter 14 with the return from that great missionary journey into the region of Pisidia and then arriving back at Antioch in Syria. So we'll pick up now where we left off the last time in chapter 14, beginning with verse 21. Now again, before we read chapter 14, verse 21, I'd like first to go back to the couple of verses prior to that, beginning with 19 is where we really ought to start, so that we'll remind ourselves of exactly what has taken place. They've gone to Antioch in Pisidia, in northern Turkey. They've traveled from Antioch about 100 miles to Iconium, and then another 25 
or more miles, maybe 40 miles down to Lystra, and then another 20 miles to Derby. They've met opposition along the way. The opposition came from Jews who were following after them, refuting what Paul and Barnabas had been saying to the Gentiles. In verse 19, it tells us, Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, meaning to Lystra, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Now, take note of the fact that they apparently stoned him in the city, and they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Now, if there had been any life obvious to them, they would have continued stoning Paul until he was certainly dead in their eyes. And I'm convinced that either the Lord made it so that they thought he was dead, though he might not have been, I admit, but it looked to them like he was. And he may have been. It's also referred to by Paul himself as a point in time when he was caught up into heaven. Some 14 years later, he wrote of those things. And he said, I don't know if I was in the body or not, but I saw and heard things that cannot even be mentioned because they were so glorious. Paul had an opportunity to enter into the presence of the Holy of Holies. But they thought he was dead. And what's amazing to me is what follows next. In verse 20 it says, However, and I think I mentioned last week that however in this passage is just as good as the phrase, but God, because that's really what it's all about. But God did something miraculous. They thought he was dead. They left him for dead, went back into the city, and he then gets up and goes back into the city to proclaim the gospel message more. That's what it tells us. However, but God, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. If I'd have been Paul, if you'd have been Paul, would we have gone back into that place where they just stoned me, thinking they did it until I was dead? Or would you perhaps want to go in the opposite direction? Mm, yeah, that's more like me. Paul decided to go back into the city. His work wasn't quite done yet. And it wasn't until the next day that he goes out from Lystra and continues on his journey to Derby, which is further down the road. Instead of backtracking, he went to the next city. More work to be done. Well, Derby is basically the end of the line as far as that territory was concerned. There was a mountain range to their southeast. That's the direction they were headed from Antioch to Lystra that was southeastward. And there was a huge mountain range separating them from Paul's hometown of Tarsus. But he possibly could have found a passageway through those mountains and made his way to Tarsus. It would have been probably a good place for him to go because, after all, Paul was from Tarsus and he had ministered in Tarsus. He probably had several converts already in Tarsus. What a place to get some R&R. But he didn't do that. After he arrived at Derby, it tells us in verse 21, which is where we now begin our study this morning, and when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned 
to Lystra. Again, after he was left for dead, he went back in the same night. He goes to Derby, and then after leaving Derby, he goes back to Lystra again. He's a glutton for punishment, you might think. But he had a mindset. And his mindset was this. I've died for Christ's sake. I love the verse in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. One of my favorite verses. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I die. I live. <laughs> I am crucified, nevertheless I live, he said. But not I, but Christ lives in me. It's all about us being in Christ and Christ being in us. And Paul knew that so very well that he was willing to risk everything. Nothing was more important to him than the proclamation of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he let nothing stand in his way to accomplish that fact. So he goes back into Lystra. And then from Lystra, he heads back into Iconium, where they had wanted to stone him there as well. And then he went back again to Antioch. He's backtracking now. He's going from where he had been, returning to those places. And there's a reason for that. It tells us in verse 22, he wanted to strengthen the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. He had physical proof of that very statement. He had suffered great tribulation already, and they could see it. Because if you know anything about the stoning of an individual, it kind of leaves a little bit of bruising behind. Uh, some, some physical damage that you can see. That man has been hit by rocks. They knew that he had suffered great persecution, tribulation indeed. Didn't stop him. And he tells the people in Antioch, expect it. There's going to be opposition. Expect it. There are going to be trials. Expect it. There are going to be difficulties in your Christian walk. But, he says, I encourage you, I exhort you, continue in the faith. Oh, that's a good word for all of us here today. Continue in the faith. Verse 23 says, So when they had appointed elders in every church, there were more than one church. Remember, there was more than one synagogue. And so there were pockets of Christians, in, especially in Antioch, in the other places as well that he had been, where he established churches. And he established them with the help of those Jews who were members of those synagogues who came to faith in Jesus Christ. And several of those Jews would have been available to teach the Word of God because the Gentiles knew nothing of God's Word. It was the Jews who had the Old Testament Scriptures who could then, now that they were saved, proclaim the Gospel to those Gentile believers. And so he had a built-in staff of preachers that he could rely on. And he was establishing the churches in those territories that he had been. God was doing a great work. But there was, again, a problem that resulted in the fact that there were some Jews who were slightly off target. But he appointed elders, in verse 23 it tells us, in every church and prayed with fasting that they commend them 
themselves, or that they be commended to the Lord in whom they had believed. And for the rest of this chapter, in chapter 14, he's going to simply quickly tell us how he gets back to Assyria, or rather Syria, in Antioch, the city from which they had come. Verse 24 simply says, And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia, or Atalia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commanded to the grace, commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. So they've completed the task. They have over a period of a year to year and a half, perhaps even two years, they had traveled, by some estimations, as much as 1,400 miles Many believe that it was slightly shorter than that. It's at least a 1,000 miles. That's a long way to go on foot or by sea in those days. That was their first missionary journey. It has now been completed. They've arrived back into Antioch of Syria. And it tells us in verse 27, Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported to all that God had done with them. So God was in this, this whole trip that they had taken. They recognized that God was with them all the way to the end of their journey and back. And he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. What a remarkable thing has been taking place through the work of Paul and Barnabas and those who were with him. A door was opened to the Gentiles. Several places in the Word of God, Paul, in writing to the Christians in several different cities, made a special prayer request. And that request was, pray that a door will be opened so that I can proclaim the gospel to all those who will hear it. He looked forward to the opportunity to preach the Word of God, but he wanted to have the doors open for him to get into a place where that proclamation of the Gospel would stick. And that's exactly what had happened throughout his ministry in all of the various works that he had done, the three missionary journeys that he completed, and a fourth one that's not included in the Word of God. Paul did exactly that. He went through open doors, but he knew that even going through an open door, there would be persecution, there would be difficulties, there would be tribulation, there would be a lot of suffering. And we related to you last time how much Paul actually did suffer as he recorded for us in the book of 1 Corinthians. But here's where the problem now is introduced to us in chapter 15, beginning with verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea, from Judea, 300 miles to Antioch. They had found out that Paul and Barnabas had returned, apparently, that things were going so very well that the Gentiles receiving the word of God were coming by faith in large numbers. And these guys coming from Judea, they are Jews, and they are actually born-again believers, apparently. But they taught the brethren brothers in the Lord, Jew and Gentile alike, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now here we have the first instance of what we know of as legalism. Legalism says this, you get saved 
not just by Jesus dying on the cross, but by that and this also. That's what legalism is. It tells you that you must do this in order to complete that salvation that was only begun when you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. There's more than that, they say, and that is that you must obey what we tell you is an obligatory thing for you to follow after. That's so very wrong. It happens still in the church today. There are many, unfortunately, different understandings of what the Word of God declares. I'm not putting denominations down specifically. I think God uses denominational environments for different purposes. There are good churches who have different ways of worshiping the Lord than we do at Calvary Chapel Ministries. That's good. People are unique. And people may find more closeness to God in a more liturgical setting. But if they are attending a church that says, Christ died on the cross, but in order for you to truly be saved, to be truly a Christian, you must observe these rules and regulations also. That's where the church has gone in many places, and it is absolutely contrary to the Word of God. And I want to bring that home to our attention today because there is a movement within the body of Christ to find something that we must be able to do in order to earn our salvation. After all, doesn't the Word of God say, show me your faith by, my, by your works? Well, there are things that we are required to do, yes, but it's not in order to earn our salvation. You are saved by faith in Jesus Christ in the finished work on the cross. When he said it is finished, that's good. All that you need to know, it is what is known in biblical terms as efficacious, completely sufficient. Nothing more needs to be done but to believe on what he has accomplished on the cross and to receive forgiveness that he alone can give through his shed blood. Many cults err in this greatly. They also err in the fact that they teach, like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons and a few others, that Jesus is a created being. That's contrary to the Word of God. But in addition to that, they teach their believers to read the Word of God, and by the way, the Mormon church... They use the King James more than most of the church that the true church do. I use the New King James. But they take their Bible with them and their journeys from house to house. And they'll knock on the door and you'll answer the door and they'll say, Hi, can we share God's Word with you? We've got this King James version of the Bible here. We want to tell you what it says. But also, we want to tell you what this Book of Mormon says. In addition to what you see in the Word of God, this Book of Mormon completes the story for us. We need to know these things. Why do they add to the Word of God? They add to the Word of God because they are following after the same methodology that the Jews were following. It's Jesus Christ plus this. 
Jehovah's Witnesses do the same thing. Seventh-day Adventists tell you you must worship the Lord on Sabbath day, Saturday, and not on Sunday. You must perhaps have a different dietary uh, regime, or not regime, regiment. There, that's the word. A dietary regiment. You must eat vegetables only. Well, I'm not against vegetarians, but I love a good steak. And if you like to eat just vegetables, that's fine. I'm glad for you. I like broccoli, even though President Bush didn't. I like peas and corns and carrots and onions and all kinds of vegetables. I don't like tomatoes that much, but that's besides. We have variety of opinions about different things, but don't make doctrines out of them. The church has gone astray because of this. They create a doctrine out of an opinion. And usually, that opinion is not based on truth. Not completely. Slightly twisted. Slightly modified. Well, the Word of God says this, but it means this. Or if you hear people saying, but it means this, run from it. The Word of God means what it says and says what it means. These Jews had come and they're now confusing the Gentiles. Antioch in Syria was the first Gentile church established and it was growing in large numbers. And I think the primary reason that these Jews were making this particular stand was simply because they were jealous, they were envious. And it caused a great deal of bitterness. You must obey the customs of Moses. If you're not circumcised, you can't be saved. Then Paul and Barnabas step in. Verse 2 says, Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. They couldn't settle it in Antioch. They couldn't convince these Jews they were wrong. It tells us again they were determined that Paul and Barnabas were absolutely out of place. There was a dissension. And it says no small dissension. That means it was a heavy-duty argument, a dispute that could not be settled. So they tell Paul and Barnabas, going down to... Jerusalem and speak to the elders and the apostles about this matter. So they were sent. It says in verse 3, So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. Everywhere they went, from Syria all the way down to Jerusalem, they met believers and they were excited about what Paul and Barnabas were telling them. But yet the Jews were persistent. It says in verse 4, When they came to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they reported all things that God had done with them. How can you dispute these things? If they were telling the truth about what God had been doing in that ministry that they had just completed, how could anybody say, Nah, that's not true. Can't be proved. Don't believe it. But there were many. But thankfully, the apostles and the elders in the church in Jerusalem 
were willing to listen. And there was good reason for that. It tells us in verse 5, But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. But now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been, again, much dispute, they wouldn't let it go. Much dispute still, even against not only Paul and Barnabas, but the apostles, including Peter, who seemed to be leaders that respected what Paul and Barnabas had been doing. It says, when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, perhaps about 20 years by now, God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Simple truth. They heard the gospel and they believed. He's referring to what took place in the book of Acts chapter 10 in the house of Cornelius, the Roman centurion. They were filled with the Holy Spirit as Peter was proclaiming the gospel message. He hadn't even finished the message and the Spirit of God came down and they believed they were baptized by the Spirit of God just like the Jews had been on the day of Pentecost a short time before that. They believed the the gospel. And in verse 8 he continues and says, So God, who knows the heart, oh yes he does, You know, have you ever heard people say, Oh, God knows my heart. You know, they're just making that statement as an excuse for the sinfulness that they allow themselves to be involved in. But He does know every heart. He's made every heart. Thankfully, He's softened some of us to believe. But He knows the heart and acknowledges them that by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us, Peter says. So that's a great statement that Peter is making. These Gentiles received the same Spirit that we did. And they didn't have to get circumcised. They weren't even baptized in water or anything at all to do with everything that the Jews believed. They just simply heard the Gospel that Jesus Christ came, died on a cross, was buried, and on the third day was raised again. That's the Gospel message. He came... He died. He rose again. That's the message that Peter preached. That's the message that Paul preached. That's the message that we preach. He made no distinction, it says in verse 9, between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Not by works, by faith. Their hearts were purified. They were born again. They were saved. They were believers. They were in the kingdom of God. They were children of the Most High by faith. It is... Through grace, by faith, that we are saved, not of ourselves. Thus we could boast if we were able to say, Hey, I did it my way and I'm in. No way. It's not God's way. It's Frank Sinatra's way. Now therefore, he says in verse 10, Why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? What's Peter saying here? He's saying something very, very important. We, as Jews, had been under the law. But we could not obey all of what the law commanded. And in not being able to obey what the law commanded, 
we were still dead in our sins. That's what Peter is arguing here. We couldn't obey. We knew that we had to obey. It was given to us by Moses. It was a law that we needed to follow, and we couldn't do it. It was a burden too great for us. It was overwhelming to us. It was a yoke on the neck that we could not handle. And you're expecting the Gentiles now to do the same? How foolish an idea this was to them. Because they had been set free. They knew the truth. And it was a wonderful thing. I've related the story of a dear friend of mine who passed away several years ago who was in the Catholic Church for all of his life. He got miraculously born again. And he started attending the church that Sandy and I were attending in Brunswick. And after the end of a service one day, he came forward for prayer. He was burdened because of all that he had believed as a Catholic and sensed that there was a conflict in his soul that he could not get rid of. He came forward for prayer. And I remember our pastor praying for him and those of us who were elders joined with him in that prayer. And we stood there with him, laying hands upon him. And what he said after that prayer sticks in my mind so wonderfully well. He said, when you prayed for me, I felt chains fall from my shoulders and I was set free. Because it was no longer the burden of having to do some work for God in order to be saved. He was miraculously delivered from that burden by a simple prayer of faith. Let there be no one here who has such a burden upon you. You do not have to work to be saved. You do good works because you are saved. That's the difference of a true faith in God. We no longer are under the law. We are under grace, Paul tells us. Peter knew that. And he said, you who require that people obey the law, don't you realize that none of us could? Verse 11 says, But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Notice the order he gives. He says, We, the Jews, shall be saved in the same manner as they, the Gentiles. Not the other way around. You'd think Peter might have said, The Gentiles will be saved just like we are saved. He's saying, no, look, they got it right. They're saved because of faith in what God has done, and we need to do exactly like what they have done. Come to Christ by faith, and let the grace of God be more than sufficient to take care of all the sin that abounds in the world, including our own. And he goes on to say in verse 12, Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. Again, they had proof. God was in it. God was doing this. God established the Gentile church. God was making it so that they could receive the gospel without any need for obedience to the law. Verse 13 continues and says, After they had become silent, James answered and said, Men and brethren, listen up. Who's James? It's not James, the brother of John, the two sons of Zebedee. 
James, the brother of John, had already been slain by Herod. Or had Herod had him slain. This is a different James. It's the same James, apparently, who wrote the New Testament book of James. It's the same James that Paul tells us later is a brother of Jesus. Actually, half-brother. They had the same mother, but a different father. James did not believe in his brother while his brother was alive. Remember, he thought he was a lunatic. He tried to convince him, hey, don't go to Jerusalem. You're making a fool of yourself. He actually had told Jesus such things. It was only after the resurrection that Jesus, we're told, met with James, his half-brother, and apparently James then believed. Why would he not? He saw his brother raised from the dead. He saw the wounds in his hands. Perhaps saw the wound in his side. There was no disputing now. He, like Thomas, must have fallen on his feet and said, on his knees and said, My Lord and my God. Now James is a leader in the church at Jerusalem. And it is he who makes this proclamation. In verse 14 it says, Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this the words of the prophets agree. So he's going back to the Old Testament. He knows the word of God. And he quotes now one of those passages that is so very, very important for the Gentiles' sake. It says, just as it is written in verse 16, After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Not Jews, but the rest of mankind. He's talking about here in the Old Testament about Gentiles, the heathen. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. So in the Old Testament, he's using that passage to proclaim the truth that even they, in that time of the existence of the people of God, the Jews, who should have been proclaiming the good news to the Gentiles all along, but did not, the Old Testament says this is going to happen. The Gentiles will hear and they will receive because the Lord is in it. So how can you dispute that? It's recorded in the Old Testament. This is what God's Word says. He says in verse 18, Known to God from eternity are all His works. Therefore I judge, this is James speaking, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. Most of that is based on the fact that there are Jews who believed that if you do anything with regard to these standards that have been set in the Old Testament regarding either dietary or obligatory things for them to avoid, not from a morality point of view, 
but from a societal point of view. Take note again of what he says. We write to them now to abstain from things polluted by idols. Idol worship is out. It's still the case today. The church should agree that it was wrong for anyone in the body of Christ to worship idols. Idols are nothing, but there are demonic beings behind them. So if you worship an idol, you're worshiping the demon that it represents. This is important. As a Christian, we need to avoid such things. From sexual immorality, the original word in the Greek is fornication. You are not to be fornicators. That means sex out of marriage. It's plain. It's simple. It's not just adultery. It's any sexual activity that is outside of the bonds of marriage. From things strangled and from blood. The Gentiles typically in that day had their temples where they worshipped their gods and they offered sacrifices. But they did it differently than the Jews did. The Jews would take their sacrifice and slit its throat and drain out the blood and then they would offer the sacrifice. The Gentiles, on the other hand, just typically strangled the sacrifice and placed it on the altar. It wasn't acceptable to the true God in that fashion because the blood was still in and should have been drained. The Lord says the life is in the blood. He wanted to make a distinction regarding blood. And then again, this last part of it, not only avoid things that are strangled, but don't drink the blood, in other words. Abstain from blood. That meant that they could not eat blood, but it also meant they could not eat meat that still had blood in it. They needed to make sure that the blood had been removed. Not so with the Gentiles. So there were distinctions being made. Why? Not because doing those things would be harmful to them and eliminate their salvation, but they were to avoid these things so that they would not offend their Jewish brothers who believed so strongly that it was wrong for them to participate in such things. Paul goes on in later epistles and talks about some of those issues. You know, should I eat the meat that's been offered to idols? Well, Paul says, look, the idols are nothing. And so meat offered to idols isn't a problem. But if you go to buy meat at the market, don't ask if that meat has been offered up to idols. But if you do so, and it has been, then you need to avoid it because it could cause an offense. It could cause problems. He wanted to make sure that nobody was offended by what we do. That's a great Christian principle. I don't want to offend any of my brothers, whether they're Jew or Gentile. So I'll go out of my way to avoid creating conflict. And that's one of the reasons why James is insisting on these things. Avoid creating issues between the brothers who believe in the law and the brothers who aren't under the law. He says in verse 20, but these things that we write 
are simple. They need to be obeyed only because it's good to do so, to avoid confrontation, to avoid offending. Verse 21 says, For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogue every Sabbath. So he's just saying, look, the Jews are all around us. We need to reach them too with the gospel. We need to make sure that we do not offend them by the things we do. If they look at us and say, oh, those people, they say they believe in God, but look at what they're doing. The same thing applies to all of us today in this present hour. We may not offer our meat or animals as sacrifices on the altar of Baal. But the things that we do, those who are outside of the faith, are looking and watching. And they see what they want to see. And when they see something that is different than what we proclaim, they jump on it. That's their argument. You bunch of hypocrites! You say this, but you do that. Be careful. That's all that James is asking the Gentile church to do. Be careful with how you represent your Lord. So he made this decree. Verse 22 says, Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are at the Gentile churches of Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we've heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, did they ever. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Notice what he's saying here. God is in agreement with us. We checked it out. We went to prayer. We did indeed seek the Lord's will in this matter. And this is what we believe the Holy Spirit has agreed to, as well as all, all of the apostles and elders who are in unity in this regard. Always a good idea to be in unity with the Holy Spirit, by the way. It's always good to know that God is in agreement with you, whatever the matter may be. It tells me that whenever I need to make a decision, I really need to go to the Lord first. I need to make sure that I'm on the right page with this decision. I want to go forward, but I don't want to go ahead of Him or behind Him. I want Him to lead. And so I rely on the Holy Spirit. Do you? Are you willing to take that risk and let God direct your life? That's how we walk. By faith. That's what it means to be a true believer in Jesus Christ. They did. It seemed good to them and the Holy Spirit to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Notice that it doesn't say, by the way, 
Not only must you be careful not to do any of these things, but you need to make sure you tithe every Sunday. Or better yet, don't worship on Sunday, but worship on Saturday, because that's the true Sabbath. You need to have a dietary law that you adhere to, because after all, Adam only ate vegetables. You know, that's a lie. I'm convinced that Adam ate lamb. So one of the things God did was to sacrifice a lamb. Where did the meat go? Noah ate meat. Abraham ate meat. Jesus ate meat. I eat meat. I won't condemn you if you don't, but again, it's simply a matter of choice. I don't want to belabor the point, but it's just one example of several that we can use to demonstrate that there are no specific obligations to the believer in Jesus Christ other than what is recorded here in the Word of God. Anything else is Jesus plus this. Let it be known among us, my friends, that is heresy. Continuing on in verse 30, we see the ministry continuing to grow. Verse 30 says, So when they were sent off, Paul, Barnabas, and the others, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. That's important. It's a little bit of a side note, a sidebar. Silas becomes an important person in the next stage of Paul's ministries. Lastly, it says in verse 35, Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, with many others also. Much later on in time, after those events had taken place, Paul writes the letter to the Galatians. Remember, the Galatians isn't a city of Galatia, it's a territory. And the territory of Galatia included Antioch of Pisidia, it included Lystra, it included Iconium, it included Derby, it included Perga, and all of the other places that they had been in that first missionary journey. And now he's writing the book that we know as Galatians to the same people who had been given the same message that we just read about in chapter 15, that they were under no obligation to obey any of the commandments under the law, but they were by grace saved through faith in Christ Jesus alone. And Paul has to write this letter to the Galatian church because they have slipped away. But he refers to this particular set of events in his writing of chapter 2 of the book of Galatians. I'd like you to turn there with me and read that portion with me. Galatians chapter 2, beginning with the very first verse, says this, talking about the fact that he had been in Jerusalem for a period of time with Peter and others, 
And then 14 years later, it says in verse 1, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. He's referring to these events that we just read about in Acts chapter 15. He says, I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Good for you, Titus. You weren't persuaded by the Jews teaching you that you were needing to get circumcised in order to be saved. You stuck with what Paul and Barnabas had taught, and you as a Greek believer are saved, and you are important, Titus. And he became a very important, indeed, member of the Christian faith in that day, ministering with the Apostle Paul on much of his journeys that follow. Titus was not circumcised. It says in verse 4, And this occurred because the false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. You see what Paul is saying? They came in secretively, and then they laid it down. They tried to convince people that you had to be circumcised. Paul says, we had this liberty that we were conveying to these Gentiles that they did not need to obey anything with regard to the commands of the law. And now these Jews come in and they try to persuade. Otherwise, these Gentile believers, he says in verse 5, and this is important, to those who spoke those things, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour. No way, Jose. That's what Paul had said. They stood their ground. And I'm so glad they did. Can you imagine if the Jews had been successful in persuading all those Gentiles to get circumcised and obey the commandments of Moses? They would have become a sect of the Jews. They would have become a sect of Jewish faith. That's how they started in Jerusalem. But they soon separated themselves and the Jews separated themselves from the believers because of the fact that they insisted on the fact that Jesus was the only way to God. I submit to you that if the Gentiles had believed these Jews, the church wouldn't exist today. No Gentile would want to get circumcised if that was a requirement in order to please their Jewish God who they had no idea about. And if that Jewish God would require such things as this, I'm happy with what I've got. That would probably be the reaction of the majority of Gentiles who did get saved. On the other hand, those Jews who believe in Christ in that smaller sect of Christ's followers would have been rejected by the Jews who didn't believe in Jesus. That sect would have died out. That wasn't God's purpose. That wasn't God's plan. He had much greater plans. And again, it goes back to the verse of Scripture that we read from the Old Testament that James quoted that it was necessary that the Gentiles would receive this word of truth and that truth would indeed set them free. 
I'm so glad that Peter stood his ground, aren't you? But there are still, as I said earlier, problems in the church even today. It needs to be addressed. It needs to be something that we hold dear and continue to insist upon. Simply this. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I desire to know nothing more among you than Jesus Christ and Him Christ crucified. That is the message that Paul gave. That's the message that we want to deliver and we shall not deviate from it no matter what the world tells us. And it may cost us. It may cost us relationships with those who do not believe. Let it be so. Jesus spoke about these very things. You remember, He said that if you do become a believer in Me, Jesus said, you'll find that it won't be very nice between you and your family members. It'll be brother against Sister, father against son, daughter against mother. There will be conflict. He said, they'll hate you because they hate me. Still the same. It hasn't changed. You know personally, every one of you, I'm sure, there are people that you relate with, that are related to, that think you're nuts. I'd like to point out the fact that we are indeed vessels. The cracked pots. But God is making good use of these cracked pots. He's forming us into His image. And He's making us into vessels of honor for His glory. The world does not see that. The world will not want to see that because they don't want to have to change what they enjoy. They enjoy darkness. They want to stay in a place where their sin is concealed. Let the light shine, my friends, and perhaps some of them will see the blackness as being what it truly is. Evil sin has grabbed hold of them and they have chains that are a burden upon them that can only be removed by faith in God through Jesus Christ. The chains will indeed fall off as they have with you who believe, as they have with my friend Ralph. Let it be so for all those that we come into contact with, that when we shine that light, they will see the need and they will reject what they had always believed if it is in contrast to what God's Word has declared. There's still work to be done. And I'm convinced, my friends, that these are the last days 
As we look around in the world today, we can see clearly that there are things happening today that could not have happened until this present hour. But it was prophesied by the Lord Jesus Himself that these things would come to pass just before He returns. And we are seeing all of that being fulfilled before our very eyes. It just presses the need to proclaim it to a higher place in our lives. Are we willing to take that risk? Are we willing to, like Paul, go to them and proclaim this word of truth in spite of the fact that we may suffer for it? I pray that that will be the case for you, for me, for all who believe. And if we're faithful in that, He'll be faithful in completing that which He has begun in each of us. And there is coming a day when the fullness of Gentiles will come in. Perhaps that last person will be someone sitting in one of these pews some Sunday morning in the days ahead. Wouldn't that be grand? They hear the gospel message. They raise their hand and say, I want to be saved. You have come to the right place for that. Come on up and we'll pray with you. We pray that prayer of faith. And the man is delivered. The woman is delivered from all of that which has afflicted him or her. And gloriously saved. And then, we're out of here. What a wonderful thing that would be. It's going to happen somewhere. And I believe it's going to happen soon. To that end, don't lose faith. Trust Him to get you through every trial, every circumstance, every pain, every sorrow, every trouble. Oh, it's worth it. Every step of the way, it's worth it.